as we continue our study through the Gospel of John. This will be our last message in John chapter 3. We'll be moving on to chapter 4 next week. It's New Year's. By the look of our attendance today, there are some who were up late last night. This is how we... Well, never mind. I was going to make a comment about alcohol, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make that comment. It's good to see you. I did stay up past midnight, but I didn't even acknowledge that the, that, that, that the year had shifted. And uh, I'm, a, I'm of that age, right? Maybe you're of that age, too. Maybe you're of the age where you're in bed at 9.30. I don't know. Uh, but I uh, didn't even notice that the, the clock had ticked over. New Year's Day is kind of an interesting phenomenon because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I mean, the, the clock shifted and it's just a new day, but we make a big deal of it, you know? And you think, well, time, isn't that just kind of contrived anyway? You know, our calendar and so on. I mean, what's the big deal? It's just another day. Uh, but you realize, and I kind of alluded to this earlier in my prayer, that God has designed the cycle of time. He's designed the, the day-night cycle. He's designed the weekly cycle and the monthly and the annual and so on. And you see even in the Old Testament that he gave um, uh, systems in place wherein the Jews could see new beginnings and they could celebrate their weekly Sabbaths and then their uh, high-day Sabbaths. And they could even have a, a year of Jubilee in which uh, men and women could have a brand new start. There's something about us in the way that we are created where we appreciate and even need such new beginnings. It, I think it has something to do with hope, right? Things just continue on and on and on the same way, and there's never any change. Then it really steals our hope, you know? Uh, you're not, if you can't anticipate, anticipate a new day tomorrow or a new week or a new month, I think it steals some hope from us. Uh, it's the way that God has designed us. And so, we appreciate new beginnings. We appreciate new eras. We understand that with those new shifts that take place, uh, hope uh, accompanies those things. In our passage this morning, we're going to see a situation. We're actually going to witness a time period in the history, in, in redemptive history, in which a major shift was happening from an old era to a new era. Very appropriate to look at this text on New Year's Day. There's two eras, the, really the setting of one and the dawning of another. A tremendous shift in redemptive history. Really what this is, is the setting of the Old Testament era and the dawning of the Messianic age. The dawning of the age of foreshadowing and, fore, and, and pictures to this new era now of substance. And in our text, what we're going to see is that these two eras, the one that is setting and the new that is dawning, are represented by two figures, John the Baptist and Jesus. And so in our text, John the Baptist himself testifies uh, to his own disciples that a new day is dawning, that the time had come for him to really fade into the distance and for Jesus to take center stage. Just look in verse 30 to start with of John 3. John the Baptist says, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. The time has come for this monumental shift in redemptive history, and now I need to exit stage left, and Christ needs to step into the spotlight. Well, with that in mind, let's read the entire passage, starting in verse 22. 
After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, remember, he and his disciples went into the countryside of Judea. And there Jesus is baptizing. His fame and notoriety is spreading. Now, we know from chapter 4 that it's not actually Jesus who's physically baptizing. It's his disciples who are doing the baptizing. Nevertheless, they are making disciples. And the Bible says that many were coming to Jesus. And now, actually, he's making more disciples than what John the Baptist is making. And that becomes an issue in chapter 4. Actually, it's when the Pharisees hear that Jesus is making more disciples of John. That's what causes Jesus actually uh, to move along. And so it says here in verse 23, again, Jesus is baptizing. It says John was also baptizing because water was plentiful. And at this point in time, what we see then is John's ministry and Jesus' ministry are overlapping. They're both baptizing. They're both making disciples. And although John had previously testified that Jesus was the one, remember that? He's standing there with two of his disciples, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew and another unnamed disciple decide to start following Jesus because John had given that testimony. Although John had testified that Jesus was the Messiah, not all of his disciples seem to have quite understood this at this point in time. And so John's still preaching, John's still making disciples, which makes sense. I mean, they don't have social media, word doesn't spread, you can't be in in every place at every time. So as Jesus is carrying on his ministry, John's still preaching and paving the way for Jesus. He's still preaching repentance and still preparing the hearts of men to receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And so these ministries are overlapping. John was continuing to serve as one pointing to Jesus. However, as I said, the relationship between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry was not entirely apparent even to John's own disciples. And so look in verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We don't have any more detail than that, but maybe it's a discussion about, John, how is your baptism related to other Jewish rituals of purification? We don't know exactly what that conversation was about, but somehow it included reference to the fact that although John was baptizing, Jesus is also baptizing. 
Because whatever that discussion was leads John's disciples to come and now approach John. Rabbi, who was, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. And what's happening here? Very interesting, because it seems as if John's disciples, John who's been pointing everyone to Jesus, right? I mean, he's that prophesied figure in Isaiah 40, saying that he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, and he's pointing to Jesus, but John's disciples in this moment... And we can't blame them. I mean, look at even Jesus' disciples and how dull they were and how slow they were uh, to grasp things. But here, John's disciples seem jealous. They're jealous of Jesus' ministry. They're jealous, and there's rivalrous, really, in the fact that he's making more disciples than John. Well, how's John going to respond to this? Is John going to share the rivalrous spirit? Is he going to be jealous, just like his disciples are jealous? Is he going to look at Jesus' ministry as competition for his own ministry? What's happening here? Will he try on to try to hold on to his disciples so that they won't go after Jesus? Well, of course not. What follows in our text is really John the Baptist speaking to his disciples and showing them in what ways Jesus is far superior even to himself and how Jesus' ministry is far superior to his own ministry and how the time has come for Jesus to take center stage. What he's going to show his disciples is that the era of the prophets is passing. The era of the old covenant is passing. What's happening now is that a new era is dawning. The messianic age is dawning. The age of fulfillment has come. And so John is going to show us that Jesus is the exclusive, spirit-filled Son of God, entrusted with all authority to testify of and carry out the Father's plan to save his chosen people from their sin, so that if any would have eternal life, they must believe in and obey Jesus. And that summarizes the entire message. With that, we're going to divide this text into four points. We're going to be focusing upon the superiority of Jesus to John. Jesus, greater than John, and really any prophet who has come before John. So first of all, in our text, what we see is that John presents Jesus as greater because Jesus is the one espoused to the chosen bride. He's espoused to the chosen bride. Look in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so, John responds to his own disciples by saying, listen, Whatever success and notoriety that Jesus uh, is now experiencing is all God-given. This is coming directly from heaven. Besides this, John says, I told you I'm not the Messiah. I told you explicitly, and that's John's testimony back in chapter 1. I'm not the Messiah. I've simply been sent before him, just preparing the way. But then John says something very interesting. He uses an analogy of sorts, tells a little mini parable in verse 29. Look at it in verse 29 and 30. What he says is, he that has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. What's he doing here? What he's saying is that Jesus is the groom. He's the bridegroom. 
And he says, I am simply the friend of the groom. Or we could say he's like the best man. Therefore, he says, this joy of mine is now complete. In a first century Jewish wedding, it was the job of the best man or the friend of the groom to be busy making preparations for the wedding and acting as a servant to the groom. The friend of the groom would work hard anticipating that wedding day. He, he wants to make things happen smoothly uh, for the groom, smoothly as possible in the run-up to that wedding ceremony. But you think about that best man or the friend of the groom working and toiling and planning for this wedding day so that the groom uh, could just receive his bride without complication, without hindrance. How is, that bride, uh, how is that best man or the friend of the groom going to feel on that wedding day? Is he going to be jealous when the groom takes his bride? Is he going to feel like, you know what, in all this preparation and planning for this wedding, I kind of had the spotlight on me. I was the one who had to make the contact. I was the one who got to make all the decisions. Uh, I was kind of front and center as I was making all the plans, and now he has stolen my spotlight. <laughs> I hope that was not your experience with your best man, your wedding. That'd be a terrible best man, wouldn't it? To see the groom take the bride, the best man or the friend of the groom would look and say, mission accomplished, mission accomplished. All my work has paid off. Everything's gone off without a hitch. And uh, the groom was able to come and take his bride to be his own, and all of my hard work has paid off. That ought to be the response. And so John is saying, I'm just that best man. But he's the groom. He's the groom come to take his bride. Now, John was a prophet, yes. John was very familiar with Old Testament prophecy. He was very familiar with the book of Isaiah. We've already uh, seen that in the early chapters here. John also would have been very familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 62. In Isaiah 62, what we find is that Isaiah tells of a future time when God would save and restore a remnant of the Jews. He would transform them from a forsaken and desolated people into a loved and cherished bride. And so 600 years before, Isaiah said this, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God re rejoice over you. The day is coming when a remnant of Jews will come, and they will be restored. And in that time, God himself will rejoice over them, just like a groom rejoices over his bride. John knows what's happening. Jesus has come. Jesus now is collecting his bride. That remnant of Jews are coming and having their hearts transform that fulfillment of the new covenant. And now God himself, through the person of Jesus, is rejoicing over that bride, just as a groom would on his wedding day. John the Baptist understands the success of Jesus' ministry to be an inauguration of that restoration. Those who are coming to Jesus and being baptized in his name are part of that chosen remnant whom the Father has chosen as a bride for his son. John was aware of Isaiah's use of wedding imagery. He was also aware of wedding imagery in Jeremiah. He would have been aware of wedding imagery in Hosea. 
John sees in Jesus' ministry so many streaming to be baptized. Just now he gets to visualize just who that bride is. A wedding day for which John's ministry was preparing. So John tells his disciples, I'm not the groom, Jesus is the groom. I'm not the groom, Jesus is the groom. I'm just the best man. The time has come for the groom to receive his bride, which means the time has come for he, John, to take a back seat. By the way, if you are a Christian this morning, we'll back it up a little bit and we'll just say this, that although in Jesus' earthly ministry, those who came to him were Jews, Gentiles were not included until after his death, resurrection, and ascension, and after a time. Eventually, what would happen is, what we would understand is the makeup of that bride would include not just Jews, but Gentiles. And that's in line with Old Testament prophecy as well. And so, the bride of Christ eventually would be comprised of Gentiles and Jews. And this morning, if you are a Christian, what does that mean for you and I? That means that we also now are part of that bride of Christ. The Apostle Paul uses this imagery in speaking to the Gentile Corinthians. He was concerned over the Corinthians and their unfaithfulness. And he says to them in 2 Corinthians 11:2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And Paul picks up on that imagery. He's speaking to a Gentile church and says, Listen, I betrothed you to Jesus. I want you to be a pure bride. The Apostle John later in the book of Revelation presents the new Jerusalem populated by all believers, Jews and Gentiles alike, as the bride of Christ. A bride adorned for her husband. Jesus also told a parable, speaking of his second coming, in which he presents himself as the groom who's gone away to prepare a place for his bride, uh, and then after a long delay to come to return to take his bride to be with himself. So in this way, the church, believers, you and I, are the bride of Jesus. He is the perfect, loving husband. This is what we see in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so the father has chosen a bride for his son. He has given that bride to his son as a love gift. The son has received that bride, and now the son is working to purify and to cleanse that bride so that in the end his bride will be presented to him without spot and without blemish. And that's you and I. That's powerful imagery, especially when you consider who we actually are. The church is made up of sinners, right? The church is comprised of men and women who have defiled themselves in all sorts of ways. And yet, while we were yet sinners, God showed his love toward us and Christ died for us. Men and women who have lived years of unfaithfulness to God. Yet such people are those whom the Father says, I'm choosing a bride for my son. Not because we're the purest, not at all, but because he would purify And so Jesus Christ, as a loving husband, is continuing to purify his church. Jesus is the groom to his bride. He's the only one. John the Baptist knew this. I'm not the groom. He's simply the best man. And so he assures his disciples, this is not jealousy. This is joy. And so he says, he must increase, but I must decrease, in verse 30. The time has come for John to fade into the background. The sun is setting on the Old Testament prophets. 
The age of fulfillment is dawning. The era of the old covenant is passing. The era of the new covenant has arrived. The work of the friend of the bridegroom is complete, and now the spotlight must shine exclusively upon Jesus because Jesus is the one espoused to the chosen bride. Now, what happens next in our passage is there is some debate as to who's talking after this point. Maybe it's John the Baptist, maybe it's John the Evangelist uh, offering some commentary on what John has just said. We are going to proceed as if this is John the Evangelist speaking, but regardless of who's speaking, the argumentation is consistent. What's happening here is we're still pointing to how Jesus is superior uh, to John, whether it's John the Baptist now speaking or John the Evangelist. But we're going to continue into verse 31. And we're going to see that not only is Jesus greater because he's the one espoused to the chosen bride, but Jesus is greater because he's the one endowed with heavenly knowledge. He's the one endowed with heavenly knowledge. Look in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Whereas John is the friend of the groom, Jesus is the groom. Whereas John is merely earthly, Jesus is of heavenly origin. Whereas John spoke in an earthly way, Jesus can testify of what he has seen as a first-hand witness in heaven itself. Here John alludes to what Jesus told Nicodemus just a few verses earlier. Look in verse 11 of chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What John's saying is Jesus is greater because he's actually come from heaven. And the things that he speaks is speaking out of the overflow of his firsthand witness of God's redemptive plan. Jesus exclusively is the one who descended from heaven. He speaks with authority regarding the divine plan. He alone can testify regarding the fullness of God's plan of salvation. And so what Jesus says must be received as authoritative truth, first-hand witness to the Father's plan of salvation. And so this is why Jesus can say authoritatively in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's God's plan of salvation. I can testify of myself. John 14, 6, that's why he can say, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Because he is the one sent from heaven by the Father, testifying to the Father's plan of salvation, those who receive his testimony, that salvation is through him and him alone, are also affirming uh, that what God has testified about salvation is true. And that's why it says there in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. When you receive Jesus' testimony as to the exclusivity of salvation through him and him alone, you are actually affirming what God has uh, revealed about salvation. To accept Jesus' words as truth is to agree with God that Jesus is God's Messiah. To believe what Jesus says is to receive Jesus as what God has declared him to be, his only son, sent from heaven to save the world. And so 1 John chapter 5 and verse 9 says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. But what has God testified? For this is the testimony of God, which he has borne concerning his Son. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony. I mean, you get the sense that about what, what we're about to read is pretty serious business here? This is what God has declared. This is what God has testified about his Son. This is it. This is the testimony. Verse 12 of 1 John 5. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what the Father has testified. For the purpose of redemption, salvation is found in Jesus alone. The Father says, salvation is here and it's in the person of my Son and I have given him for you. You must believe to have eternal life. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who has come from heaven declaring a heavenly message as a first-hand witness. He's sharing God's own testimony regarding salvation in him and him alone. Salvation is through Christ. If one is to be true to God, he must receive Jesus' testimony regarding how one must be saved. And so we've learned that Jesus is greater because he's the one espoused to the chosen bride. Jesus is greater because he is the one endowed with heavenly knowledge. Next of all, We see that Jesus is greater because he's the one empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. He gives the Spirit without measure. Yes, prophets of the past spoke by the Holy Spirit, moved by the Holy Spirit. Christ, however, is in a completely different category. Jesus, the Messiah, possesses the Spirit without measure the absolute fullness of the Spirit of God. It's John who testified in John chapter 1 that he saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus and remained there. Also, we recognize that Jesus in his very conception was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and as a man, he continues empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, back to Isaiah in chapter 11. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, A shoot from the stump of Jesse, that is a new branch, a new Davidic branch is going to sprout from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's Christ. Isaiah 42, that servant song says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And what does John say? He says, because the Spirit is upon him and has been given to him without measure, he utters the very words of God. Jesus kicked off his own earthly ministry by quoting Isaiah 61. He said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now listen, what do you do? Here's a rabbit trail for you. What do you do with the fullness of the Spirit? What do you do with the fullness of the Spirit? What would you do if you're fully... Would you you take off your coat and wave it at people to watch them fall down backwards? Is that what you would do? What would you do with the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Look what Jesus does as the one endowed with the Holy Spirit. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. That's evidence of spirit fullness. I'm going to preach the gospel to the poor. 
I'm going to break those who are captive to sin out from that captivity of sin. Jesus' spirit-filled ministry saw him bring the gospel to the poor, good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, liberty to the captives. And so Jesus concluded that reading of Isaiah 61 by saying, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and that certainly characterizes Jesus' earthly ministry, doesn't it? And so a new era has dawned, the era of the new covenant has come, a new era The era of fulfillment has come. John must decrease. Jesus must increase. Why? Because Jesus has come from heaven, full of the Spirit of God, testifying as a firsthand witness regarding God's plan to save humanity. In the power of the Spirit, Jesus has come to speak the words of divine wisdom, divine counsel, divine might. Jesus has come to bring the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to break men and women out from the captivity of sin. This is a... This is a magnitude of spiritual power, the likes of which was entirely unknown to John the Baptist or any previous prophet. Jesus is superior, as is the dawning of the Messianic age, because Jesus is the one empowered by the Holy Spirit. Next, we see that Jesus is greater, because Jesus is the one entrusted with absolute authority. Look in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And so a few weeks ago, we saw in John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that he did what? For God so loved the world that he gave the world his only Son. And here we find in John chapter 3, verse 35, that the Father so loves the Son that he has given all things into the hands of the Son. God so loved the world that he gave his son. God so loved the son that he gave the son the world. God the Father has entrusted all authority to the son. The son has complete authority to save, complete authority to judge. He has authority to grant eternal life to whomsoever he chooses. He has authority even to lay down his life and to take it up again. For the purpose of carrying out God's plan of salvation for the world, the son has been given absolute authority. As we will see, this handing over of absolute authority to the Son has far-reaching consequences for you and I. John chapter 5, verse 22 says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Because Jesus and Jesus alone has been entrusted with absolute authority in terms of salvation, any who would be saved must honor the Son just as they would honor the Father. That is, there's no relationship with the Father except through the Son. There's no, oh, I believe in God as creator, but I reject the Son. For the purpose of the redemptive plan, what the Father has said, if you will honor me, if you will worship me, if you will obey me, you must honor and worship, and obey my Son. This text is an explicit statement of the divinity of Jesus. If Jesus is not entirely equal with the Father, then frankly this is blasphemy in John chapter 5, verse 22. Because what Jesus is saying is that if the Father deserves reverence, then I deserve reverence. If the Father deserves obedience, then I deserve obedience. If the Father deserves even worship, then I deserve worship. Just as you would honor the Father, you must honor the Son. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father 
Why? Because all things have been given into his hand. He is the one entrusted with absolute authority. And so Jesus is the one espoused to the chosen bride. Jesus is the one endowed with heavenly knowledge. Jesus is the one empowered by the Spirit. And Jesus is the one entrusted with absolute authority. And lastly, we see that Jesus is the one in whom we must believe. Jesus is the one in whom we must believe. Verse 36, this is wrapping it all up because of the superiority of Christ. John says, I must decrease, he must increase. I must fade into the darkness, he must take the spotlight. Why? Because uh, he is the one in whom men must believe. And so John says, I'm just that sign pointing to Jesus, and my mission is almost done. But he's the one in whom we must believe. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And again, that summation, that's a consequence of everything that we've just seen. This is the natural conclusion uh, flowing out of everything we've seen about the greatness of Jesus. But notice what John does in verse 36. I'm helped by the fact that this is either John the Baptist or John the Evangelist, and they're both named John, so take it however you will. But notice what John says in verse 36. John offers as the alternative belief to... Notice what he offers as an alternative to believing in the Son. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And now what you expect to see next is whoever does not believe in the Son does not have eternal life. That's what you would expect to see. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But then he says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. What's going on here? This tells us something very interesting about the Bible's use of the word belief in regard to Jesus. Instead of saying whoever believes and whoever does not believe, John says whoever believes and, and, and who, whoever does not obey. The indication being that the opposite of belief, in some sense, is disobedience. In other words, the type of belief which we are to render to Jesus as a consequence of his greatness that we've already seen in some way includes what? Obedience. Why did Zoe get baptized this morning? Don't answer that, Zoe. Why did Zoe get baptized this morning? This is Zoe's step of obedience to Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ said to get baptized. You want to express faith in me? Be baptized. Just an illustration of how we render obedience to Christ as an example or as an outworking of our belief. The type of belief which we are to render to Jesus, which results in eternal life, is a belief which features obedience. This makes sense when you consider the testimony that we've just seen regarding Christ. He is the exclusive, spirit-filled Son of God, entrusted with all authority to testify of and carry out the Father's plan to save His chosen people from their sin. And Jesus' call to salvation includes what? A call to repentance, a call to follow Him a call to take up your cross, a call to submit to his authority, a call to embrace him as one's Lord and Master. Jesus' call to believe in him is a call to obedience. When the Apostle Paul sought to encourage the church in Thessalonica, which was suffering under persecution, he said this in 2 Thessalonians 1.5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? Believe the gospel? Yes, believe the gospel. But here Paul says that Christ is going to return, and when he returns, he returns with vengeance, flaming fire, judgment upon those who what? Who do not obey the gospel. He continues, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To refuse to believe in Jesus is to refuse to believe all that the Father has testified regarding his Son. Therefore, to reject a belief in Jesus is to disobey the Father. And in an act of utter irony, what the Father says is that if you refuse to obey me by believing in the Son, then you will be judged. And because he has entrusted all authority to the Son, you will actually be judged by the Son. Those who rebel against God by rejecting the Son will suffer God's judgment at the hand of the Son. Because he's been entrusted with all authority. And he is the one on whom we must believe. For the one who rejects the Son, the wrath of God, John says, is not removed from him, but remains on him. That's what our text says. That is, we're all born condemned. We're all born uh, worthy of the wrath of God. And those who refuse to believe in Jesus remain in that state. So in conclusion, John the Baptist's disciples did not grasp the magnitude of the shift that was taking place in the course of redemptive history. They didn't understand the significance of Jesus coming on the scene and what that meant for John's ministry. John explained to them that this transition was not only necessary, but an object of his own great joy. John the Baptist got to see a new era dawn. John the Baptist had the privilege of paving the way for and ushering in the new covenant. John the Baptist had the privilege of watching the groom begin to take in the bride whom John had begun to prepare for that moment. John got to witness the one with exclusive heavenly knowledge begin to testify of God's plan of salvation. He got to see the one to whom Isaiah pointed who would be entirely filled with the power of the Spirit. John got to see uh, the one who is trusted with absolute authority. John rejoiced to see all of this fulfilled. And that's why he could say, my time, my time is almost up. I must decrease and he must increase. And so this morning, will you believe that Jesus is the exclusive, spirit-filled Son of God, entrusted with all authority to testify of and carry out the Father's plan to save his chosen people from their sin, so that if any would have eternal life, they must believe in and obey him? That's the right response. That's the right response. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, what a wonderful day to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. New year. It's a new year. It's a time of new beginnings. If you would, then today would mark far more than a new year for you, right? This would mark the beginning of your new spiritual life. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your Son, And Lord, we confess this morning that Jesus Christ is your only Son. We confess that he is the one endowed with and entrusted with absolute authority over the affairs of men. We confess that he is the one that has the authority to grant eternal life to whomsoever he chooses. We confess this morning that Jesus Christ is one day going to return with power, with vengeance. 
He's going to come both with reward and judgment. Lord, we confess this morning that Jesus is the one that you have offered as the means of salvation. And so, Lord, those of us who are Christians this morning, confess Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Help us to trust him better. Help us to love him more. Help us even to look at areas of our life in which we have failed to obey Christ. Understanding that obedience is not rendered in order to achieve standing with you, but because we have been accepted by you. And then, Lord, this morning we pray for any who are here with us who have not yet received Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. I pray that they would see the greatness of Jesus. I pray that they would receive the testimony that you have given regarding your Son, that it's through him and him alone that we can come to you. We pray that today would be the day of salvation for some. Impress upon their heart by your Holy Spirit their need for Christ. We pray that they'd repent of their sin, receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, trusting him and him alone for salvation. Lord, we thank you for this. And as we enter this new year, help us to make much of Jesus. As we continue our study of the Gospel of John, help us to have an exalted Christology. Help us to stand in awe of who Christ is and help us to develop an ever-deepening appreciation for who he is and what he's done for us. Lord, we thank you for all of this in his precious name. Amen.